I'll have what she's having. Welcome to our Better Half podcast. I'm Laura Lister-Mensch, the host, a middle-aged prude with a microphone, chatting with friends and interesting strangers about sex and sexuality in the second half of life. Our guest will be Rebecca Warner. It's June 26th, 2016, and this is episode 23. Here is a question. Is sex medically necessary? Is it a want or a need? And how much is having a sex life worth to you? For women to have penetrative sex with penises or toys or fingers, pain is a deal killer, clearly. And after menopause, that can be a problem. Natural lubrication can fail. Vaginal walls can get thinner and more fragile, making lovemaking feel hateful instead. These are not problems always resolved with a glug of lubrication or more foreplay. They're arguably no less life-changing than losing the use of any other body part. There are solutions, both medical and therapeutic, but only if women and their partners are ready to read, consult their doctors and their search engines, and problem-solve. And I'm not today going to address all the approaches or medicines. There are many options, but today I invited a guest to talk about an aspect that you may not have thought of, and I confess I hadn't really thought that much about. Will your insurance carriers think that your postmenopausal sex life is worth paying for? And if so, how much is it worth? I read with interest an article about this topic, written by the award-winning writer and blogger Rebecca Warner, the author of Moral Infidelity and He's Just a Man, among other books. Warner spoke up forcefully in this Huffington Post piece about an inequity that could mean continuing one's happy sex life depends on your bank account and why we should all care whether we're personally affected or not. Hello, Rebecca. How are you today? Hi, Laura. I'm doing great. How about you? It's a great day here in Virginia. And it's a great day here in North Carolina. Oh, how lovely. Can I ask you, when you were a kid, what did you dream of doing when you grew up? You know, I always wanted to be a writer. And I always won short story contests and um, poetry contests. And then uh, as I got older and got into college and realized I'm going to have to make a real living, Hmm. I switched to being a finance major, which is quite a difference of right brain, left brain, but it served me well for many years. And I was a banker in Miami, Florida, and it was a very good career. But when I retired, my husband retired me early. I thought, no, I'm going to go ahead and try writing now. So that's what I've been doing for the past number of years. That's fantastic. How old are you now? I am 61. Congratulations. Thank you. Happy and healthy. So the reason I wanted to have a chat with you, you wrote a marvelous piece in the Huffington Post with the title of, Yes, You Too Can Enjoy Pleasurable Postmenopausal Sex. Yes. It was a great piece. And there's one line in there I want to read that really intrigued me. It said, aging gracefully simply cannot occur if a woman who wants to have sex cannot do so without pain. I believe that, don't you? I do. Talk about what was in that article and why that's an important issue. 
It's an important issue because when a woman uh, is postmenopausal, there comes a point where, for many of them, sex becomes painful. And there are remedies for that. And what inspired me to write this was, um, as I said, I in the article I started out talking about a friend who was had been not been sexually active. She was 55. She was moving towards sexual intimacy with a new man she was dating, and she was afraid there could be pain involved based on past experience. And so I told her about this wonderful pharmaceutical, uh, medically available remedy, which was very neat, simple, effective, and uh, did not have any side effects. So she was using that. But she then called me and said, my insurance isn't going to cover this anymore. And it was it was hundreds of dollars. That, it's an astronomical amount of money for this that she had to come out of pocket. And I thought, well, that's fine. She can afford it. I can afford it. There are many women who can't, and they forego these medications because they can't afford them. And so the whole point of this is, of the, art, of the article was, even though Huffington Post made it, yes, you too can enjoy pleasurable postmenopausal sex, my original title was more to do with the insurance companies are denying us the right to have that. So that's what this blog was about. Yeah, so important. And I'm I'm a Huffington Post blogger too. And people don't, probably don't know that our titles sometimes are changed from what we originally wrote. Yeah. May I ask, what was the medicine that both of you were discussing? It was called Vagifem. And it's just a tiny little suppository, very neat, very simple to use. And it works only in that area. So that it's not like estrogen, it's not going through your system, but it's very effective. And indeed, within a week, she was able to have painless, enjoyable intercourse with her new beau, and she was delighted. But she was then surprised that now she continued using it. This is about, I think, the third year she's using it, and now it's no longer covered. And so that was shocking for me. And I will say I am following up and finding out more about why it is not covered, but we will talk about that at another time perhaps. What's really important here is that women have access to medicines they can afford to make postmenopausal sex as enjoyable as it can be. Now, Medicare does pay for Vagifem, and it's a very low copay, like $30, whereas now women, I got responses from women that are paying up to $780 for 24 of these tablets, which is a three-month supply, and I thought that was just a mind-boggling number. So, but in between postmenopause, which can happen in your 40s, to Medicare time at 65, what are women supposed to do? And I did get some interesting responses about other things women use. Yeah. But first, I just want to clarify: your doctor and your friend's doctor both prescribed this medicine. Your doctors yeah. were okay with your taking it. Very much so. And considered it normal and necessary. Absolutely. It was seemingly overnight that my husband and I were making love and I was like, whoa, stop. This is painful. I know this is intimate what we're talking about, but this is how it came about for me. That's okay. And I called my doctor's office the next morning and said, you have to work me in. And they did. And he was like, oh, sure. Yes. Well, here's a little prescription for this and this should take care of it. And indeed it did very quickly. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? I never have to worry about this again. And um, that's how I found it. And so it was something 
readily prescribed. There are other things, but this was the one he prescribed for me. It's not a messy cream. It's not an inserted ring. It's not anything that's more difficult to use, actually. This is the simplest little uh, medication that you could possibly use for this purpose. So it was very good for me. But now I can afford it, but I resent this. And I did actually have responses, too, from someone who said that she now gets hers from Canada. And it cost her $60 for a three-month supply versus what we are paying up to $780 here in the United States for this exact same medicine. You, there's a, another line uh, that really struck me in your piece. You said, is it just that the vaginas of women who can no longer reproduce are considered? Are considered, well, not worthy of consideration. Are we just supposed to dry up and blow away? That's what I was saying. If, we, if we're not reproductive, are we in, in, inconsequential in the pharmaceutical realm or in the medical realm? And that's my question. Whereas the symptoms that we experience, it's not just vaginal atrophy. There are other medical reasons to be taking these or using these uh, postmenopausal remedies. And there are reasons that we need health in that area as well. A younger woman might need to have a healthy reproductive area. We need a healthy vaginal area. These medicines also help prevent UTIs because as we get older, those cells dry in that area and that causes more frequent UTIs. There are medical reasons for this. It's not just pleasure or comfort. Yeah, and I think that's really an interesting question that we're talking about is the question of whether reproductive health is, I think everyone agrees, is important. But what about pleasure as well? And when they've been disconnected, the insurance company is no longer considering it necessary. It's not necessary to be happy. It's only necessary to be able to reproduce. That's the exact feeling, Laura, that I get in reading and researching this. Um, and in researching, I think that I had mentioned in the article too, I did mention that, um, other women, there were, there were forums and, um, women were talking about, uh, would not, their health insurance wouldn't cover treatment for their symptoms because they consider, quote, hormone level decline a normal part of aging. Well, you know, so are bad knees. <laughs> so are, you know, there, are, there are many things that, that, that happen with aging. And why is this one being uh, sorted out as being not really worthy of consideration? Uh, when there are so many medicines, how many medicines do we see? How many things do we see on TV that are so related to aging problems for men and women? And yet this one isn't considered important enough to... Give us a, a, an affordable option to treat it. So that was that's one of my concerns, and I am following up on this to see where I can go with it. I really would like to see if we can do something about getting this somehow reversed, this, these kinds of decisions. And it is an insurance company issue. And I will tell you that I have gotten in touch with someone who has many connections with insurance companies, and um, he actually queried several of them, and he got one response from one of the very biggest in the nation, and their response was the class agents for this drug were clinically neutral to the other drugs. That's Primum, 
estrace, e-string, femring. And again, these are all more invasive things. But And so they placed the lowest net cost drugs on the preferred list. So these others that are, may not be as effective, are not as convenient, are not as easy to use, might not give the same excellent results the Vagifem does, it cost more, so they moved Vagifem off of the preferred list and put the lower cost ones on there. So it is an insurance, exactly what I ask in the article, what insurance executives made this decision? And now we know, and I will be following up on that. So that's really where it is based from. Can we compare this to the need for sexual happiness for men and medicine? I think we can. And there was a big controversy because everyone kept thinking that Viagra was covered under insurance and it was covered under Medicare. But it's really not. It's very costly. In fact, I, if I may um, add this, I got a wonderful email from Joan Starker. She's a Ph.D., and she said, thanks so much for your superb piece on postmenopausal sex. I'm a clinical social worker, health educator, and I specialized in midlife, menopause, and aging issues. I was a menopause consultant for WebMD for seven years, and I'm in private practice. I have been thinking about this issue for some time. I believe that the lack of access to medical interventions for vaginal dryness is appalling. It's ageist, sexist, and classist. It is also true that similarly, Viagra can cost about $44 per tablet, and it isn't covered by insurance. So it goes both ways. Um, that's a lot of money, $44 a tablet. I'm screaming, but that's about what it costs for a Vagifin tablet, too. Are they just trying to get us not to have sex after a certain age? Do you think, Laura? <laughs> I, well, it, it does seem to be an afterthought. It does, doesn't it? And I'm wondering how it make how did it make you feel to have that questioned or or difficult? Although with your doctor you didn't have that, but um, what we're seeing from insurance is a little different. That this is not medically necessary, right? Um, how did it emotionally feel, and what are you hearing from people about their emotional reaction to having aging be considered? your sexual life not being important. I think that from the women that I heard of who all seem to be aware of this kind of medication, there is a, a general hue and cry of, is this really a medical issue or a pharmaceutical issue and possibly even a political issue? Um, how did they feel is that they will find another way. If they can't have this, they will have something else. One person said that when she went to fill it and her prescription was $780, she said, I can't afford that. And she called her doctor and the doctor prescribed Premarin, which is a cream and not nearly as easy to use. And the cost of that is still $285. So think about that. Your alternative to the preferred is still very expensive. And also people are pretty aggravated right now from the responses with what the pharmaceutical companies are doing in a lot of regards but especially with women's, of course, uh, medication in this particular regard. So women are not happy that they're having to pay so much or look for alternatives. And one woman did. I thought this was a really funny alternative. Maybe it'll work. She experienced menopause in her mid-40s and with a bit of trial and error and a lot of giggles. Lubes from the local adult shop proved helpful. 
but as with food, you must read the label. That's what she said. <laughs> she said, however, the best ended up in our kitchen. Coconut oil, all natural, will stain colored sheets, but no copay. <laughs> I, thought <that> was, <laughs> I thought that was clever. <laughs> and this, I answered her, this is a perfect example of necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> or, and it really, coconut oil, who knew? And there are others who say that over-the-counter lubricants like Replens work just as well for them, but too many women say, no, that is not good enough. That is just like, a, you might as well use KY or something, which of course makes penetration easy, but that does not take care of the internal discomfort, dryness, and pain. And so there are alternatives, but none of them seem as good as Fagipim. And as I said, we've now determined that since Fagipim cost more, they took it off the preferred list and put the other lower cost remedies as the preferred drug. So this is something I'm going to be following up on. And I am so delighted that you take an interest in this. And thank you for contacting me. I'm delighted that you saw the article and uh, wanted to talk about it. I think we do need to talk about it because I think um, as we get older, we some get somewhat apologetic about the topic when really <sighs> we need to push back past our discomfort. We need to talk to our doctors and talk to each other. You're absolutely right. So last question. From, from your research and from the responses, what can we do to change this? Not just about the Vagifem, but in general, what are you learning about what we can do as older people to change this so that people have options? I think we need to fight back uh, against these policies that we have no control over, but there are remedies. Um, for the women who are not yet on Medicare, you can. The Affordable Care Act does give us the right to um, request an internal appeal or an external review. And that's a place for women to start is, is if you find that this medicine is something you use and it's no longer, and this is true of almost any medicine that could affect our aging. Um, the pills that people, women take also, estrogen pills, estrogen progesterone, ex very expensive. Everything that seems to have to do with our aging well and being able to enjoy sex, these things are decided by insurance companies. And it's going to take people like Dr. Laura Starker, who works on it, people like you, who are interested in talking about it, people like me, who write and research, and also women themselves. Speak up. Demand some kind of an ex explanation. And let's just get a dialogue going. We can do that, and that's the only way we're going to be able to bring this to the attention of people. And from the responses I got, a lot of women think about it. They're just not doing anything about it. We need to motivate them to actually follow through and protest when they have an opportunity, a written forum. Good advice. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, for this conversation. We'll keep talking. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. appreciate it. Each episode, we pause to exercise our pelvic floor by doing Kegel exercises together. These exercises are not just for lady parts, fellows. They're also important for strengthening and toning the muscles that support your erections and your orgasms, too. Now, sex with vaginal dryness and atrophy has been described as feeling like sandpaper. So as we do our Kegels, let's resolve, should we have any such problems? to call our doctors and research our options. No one should give up their sex life 
because of menopause. Welcome, Alberta Knish, this podcast's correspondent of Truly, Truly Old Sex. What fun topic do you have today? Hi, Laura. Today we're going to be talking about penis size, everybody's favorite. In this political season, it seems to have come up more than one expects, so I thought maybe it'd be fun to do a podcast on that. But we're going to talk about penis size in classical art mostly sculpture. That's the one it comes up. Everybody wants to know, why are the penises so small on those classic Greek sculptures? Okay. And it turns out there are some reasons. So some of this goes back to sort of the the Greek ideal. The Greeks prized balance and rationality and uh, justice and all of those things. Their art was an expression of that. They believed that Form mirrored function. The perfect body was a, a an expression of the of the perfect mind and the perfect spirit. So physical beauty for them focused on symmetry. So you'll notice that that those are all they're supposed to be athletes and gods and and to you know famous people of that sort, Greek heroes. But they're not overwrought muscularity like you'll you'll see in our you know, a, a superhero movie now or, or anything like that. They, they was um, symmetry and, and that sort of thing was good. Large penis size was not part of that ideal. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Uh, large penis size was associated with either foolishness or bestiality, not in the sense of, you know, some kind of deviant sex practice, but bestiality in terms of not being a rational human, letting your emotions carry you away. So in Greek art, and um, particularly in their plays, a, a large penis would be added to a costume to indicate this is a person who's a fool, or this is a person who uh, you know is, is, is going to be the bad guy because they, they don't think things through, they act on impulse. When they thought about fertility, they thought the things that led to fertility were not big penises, again, like you might see in some other cultures, but um, rationality, wisdom, wealth, health, penis size was not part of that at all. So if you are in a sculpture trying to present the Greek god Zeus or something, you're not going to give him a huge phallus. You put that on a satyr. Or um, there is a god called Priapus. He is traditionally represented by a huge penis, but uh, he was actually kicked off of Mount Olympus for being a fool because he offended the other gods so much. So uh, they, they didn't go into that at all. And actually, the Greek playwright Aristophanes wrote a lot in his play Clouds, it spent a lot of time talking about penis size. There's one great quote that the chorus sings. She doesn't play the fool by bringing on a great thick red-tipped leather tool. Oh, my. <laughs> now, that references 
the, the Greeks were, were quite comfortable with nudity in a way that modern Christians are, uh, uh, Judeo-Christian peoples are not, and Muslim peoples are not. The only part of the penis that they considered lewd was the glands. So that one of the things that they would do, and you will notice there's a, um, one of the websites that I sent you, Laura, that you can, you can click on. They would tie the acropostion, uh, which is the part of the foreskin that kind of covers the glands. They would tie that off at the end while they were uh, doing athletic things so that the glands wouldn't accidentally get out there and be seen. But uh, Aristophanes' line refers to the look of a circumcised penis, which was common among Semites of, the, of their time when, when the play was being written. Egyptians, obviously Jewish people, but, but other, other people of the, the Nile Delta and um, Asia Minor would have been circumcised. So the Greeks viewed that as completely the wrong way to go. And so they would actually, when you look at some Greek statues, there's kind of this funny bulb at the end of the penis. And if you ever really look at a Greek statue and feel like you can do this without getting raised eyebrows at, at a uh, museum, you will notice the incredible detail that they do on men's genitalia altogether. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I right. never heard that. Yeah, and, and there's also a second thing. is The Greeks were very concerned that their sculpture art be realistic, and they were frequently drawing uh, people who were supposed to be in exerting themselves or athletes or anything. And one of the physiologic responses to that is that the uh, scrotum is pulled up towards the body and the, the, you know, the, the penis is everything. So it's, it's actually when the men, male genitals are going to look smallest you know, after you've been swimming in cold water or you've just run the marathon or something of, of, of that sort. So uh, there is some scholarship that suggests now it's just sort of the condition that they would have their male models be in. And the third one is that their physical ideal was actually the prepubescent male, while the acropostion uh, at, is at its longest and the genitals aren't at their largest. So there's a lot of thinking going on in, into what's going on here, and it all kind of fits the same picture that for the Greek man... It certainly wasn't all about hand size. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, thank you very, very much. We, we will have links and uh, some pictures in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. And now, our youth translator, Marina Maklos, will explain that to a grandma. I'd like to know what Instagram Bay is. Instagram Bay is a term based off of the social media platform Instagram, which is a social media app and website that allows people to post photos, and then other people can comment or like those photos. They is another word for significant other. Some people say that it's an abbreviation of baby, and some people think of it as an abbreviation of before anyone else. But it's just another pet name, kind of like baby, doodlebug, boo. And so Instagram Bay is someone who comments or flirts 
on someone else's Instagram profile. Until next time. It is time to catch you up on recent news about sex filtered through my very special prude spectacles. Pornhub, that carnival of video pornography, has gone accessible. Blind patrons can now access narrated film clips offering a blow-by-blow of the action on screen. There's a fun job. As a writer, I find the prospect of good real-time explaining rather intriguing, but as an old prude, I fear that my narration would fail to carry out the spirit of the thing. Well, she's... And he seems to... The door opens and... Oh. Oh, no. Oh, dear. The accessibility news, of course, caused me to Google closed caption porn out of curiosity. And good news! That is a thing for the deaf. But I have to think that describing the action will take a lot more words than the actual dialogue offered in these films. What is pornography, anyway? Does it involve body parts or passion? Erica Lust, a feminist erotic filmmaker, tested that proposition by posting an erotic film without sex on YouTube and incurred the wrath of censors for her content. She responded by posting a mashup that's sampling old people, of things that YouTube does allow with a pointed message about misogyny. YouTube continues to ban her offering and allow shake ass hot tits ass 18 plus. I lived in New York City in the 80s as a 20 something and I well remember the way my blood pressure rose and then dropped dangerously when I was groped on a busy subway one morning. The guy's face was as bland and expressionless as the Sphinx, but I felt as unsettled by my indignation as I did by my inaction. I just moved away. I did nothing. And I betrayed no emotion. I don't know why. But I simply didn't feel there was anything I could or should do in the moment. Modern subway riders, however, have options. The New York City transit system is documenting and prosecuting the sexually inappropriate on public transport, and as a result, more people are speaking up. And thank goodness for cell phones. The mashers and the gropers are being photographed and called out. Feel something? Say something. I know, a lot of people are confused these days. Heterosexual, gay, bisexual, asexual, pansexual. Even the Kinseys would be confused. But now... You may want to consider attraction types as well. Aromantic, romantic asexual, hypersexual. Do you need clarity? Take a look at the purple-red scale linked on the show notes at ourbetterhalf.net to learn your particular number, letter, and color on the scale. And if you really need to understand the categories, Sex in the City's Charlotte was a D0 and Samantha clearly an F2. It's hot in the northern hemisphere, winter in the south. So who's having more fun under the sheets? No one knows, obviously. But that does not keep Glamour magazine from playing Tevya with science. On the other hand... Apparently, more hours of sunlight equals more serotonin equals better mood, more sex. And... More outdoorsy exercise and social times, not to mention less melanin, which dampens sex hormones. On the other hand... Heat, 
can send sex drive down. And it is true that babies are less likely to be created during the hottest days of the year. And on both hands, the internet says the other hand. that you are all out making sexy searches most during June and July and then December and January, which covers both seasons and hemispheres. Who cleans the toilets at your house? Runs the vacuum. We may be able to tell by how often you are making laundry in the bedroom. Couples who more equitably share housework tend to have sex a good percentage more often. And interestingly, this has been changing over time. Apparently, there was a period of time when home equity reduced home sexy time. But time and habit has turned it inside out, like everyone's socks in the hamper, not mentioning any names. You already know that you should not click on emails that promise you free money. And you've figured out how to travel the internet without giving away your password to scammers. But how sure are you that you are not being watched right now by your computer? It may sound paranoid to put a sticky note over your computer camera, but if the founder of Facebook and the director of the FBI do that, perhaps you should too. Not that you look particularly interesting sitting there on your laptop, but especially when a third of internet use involves naughty behavior, I bet you don't want anyone watching and recording that look for posterity. We all understand that beauty pageants are when people judge the conformity and appearance of women. They're nothing like reality TV where people are judged for how well they pretend to be real. But apparently beauty pageants which traffic in objectifying women as sexual objects, thought Miss Great Britain got a little too real with a co-star and took her title away for having sex off-camera with a co-star. Apparently, this hurt the reputation of the pageant. Thank you for listening in today to Our Better Half. I do not take it for granted. Please visit OurBetterHalf.net to see all the clever graphics and links and pictures that accompany this little project. And if you like it and you think the topic is important, tell a friend. Go rate Our Better Half on iTunes. Oh, and old people, have a nice orgasm today. Yeah, today. Not this minute, but today. You've earned it. Hey, this is Dan Savage from the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, and you're listening to a Swing Set podcast at Swing Set FM.